Happy Tuesday, and welcome back to another edition of the Piano Rhapsody Podcast. This is a podcast where you follow my journey as an amateur piano player, working my way up to playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day. Every week, we dissect a piece that I encounter along the way and learn a little bit about music theory and history. This is episode 3.6, and speaking of music history, this is the conclusion to our trip through the musical eras. We've discussed Baroque, Classical, Romantic, and several aspects of modern music, including Impressionism and Jazz. Today, we're going to round out the modern era by discussing some elements of modern music and taking a look at a piece written in the 1990s. Now, the modern era describes music from year 1900, and it is the era that we are still currently in. So, as you might imagine, the music of the past 120 years can't really be readily classified under one nice umbrella, considering the extensive musical diversity. For instance, look how dated a pop song from the 90s sounds today. And then you can go back even further. How about a disco hit from the 70s? Or a Motown song from the 60s? Or an Elvis song from the 50s? And we could go on and on. Music has evolved substantially during this era, but we're going to speak in grand generalities to point out what exactly defines modern music. First of all, something we touched on in both the Impressionism and Jazz episodes, modernism really opened the doors to tonality. Composers did not feel confined to only major and minor keys, and utilized a variety of modal scales whole tone scales, and pentatonic scales, even jumping between them within a single piece. The idea of writing a piece in a specific key started to wane. Pieces labeled Sonata in A Major or Prelude in E Minor were starting to become a bit old-fashioned. The spectrum of tonal color expanded during this era. It's like that day in kindergarten when you get your first box of 64 Crayola crayons, when all you've had before is eight. Then, all of a sudden, you can draw more things than just a green tree, a red house, or a blue sky. Now you can draw things like a forest green tree, a brick red house, and a cerulean sky. It's a totally different world. (laughs) In addition to this expanded tonality, Modern music does not shy away from dissonance, and at times, embraces it. Before this point, composers would use it sparingly, but were always quick to resolve it into a consonant chord. The modern composers welcomed these uneasy feelings that dissonance brings, and lingered on them with little to no regard of resolving the conflict. Audiences, however, needed some time to warm up to this idea. Actually, there's a pretty interesting story that goes along with this. While it's not a piano piece, a great example of the use of extensive dissonance is Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, a ballet and orchestral work that debuted in 1913 at the beautiful New Theatre in Paris, the Theatre des Champs-Élysées. And just in case you're wondering, no, my French has not improved. The premiere night of the Rite of Spring 
is known as one of the biggest debacles in the history of the arts. The audience was so shaken by this modern piece of music that they actually started a riot. It was reported that the audience was upset by the level of dissonance, the jerky movements of the dancers, and the weird noises coming from the woodwind section. Just to give you a flavor of what this piece is like, here's a short excerpt of a piano arrangement of the Rite of Spring. So as you can see, there are a lot of unusual clashing tones going on here. And it was like nails on a chalkboard to this audience at the time. The subject matter could also have something to do with the audience's dissatisfaction. The ballet is based on a primitive society and their fertility rite of sacrificing a young woman who dances to her death at the end. So I get it. They didn't like the music, not what they expected, but to riot? I mean, this was an all-out brawl. Fist fighting, throwing things on stage. The police arrested 40 people this night. A bit of an overreaction, wouldn't you say? I mean, we, we've all been a bit upset by going to see a movie that we don't like, but that doesn't mean I'm going to punch the guy next to me after a showing of The Room. Well, apparently there may have been some other forces at play that evening. Stravinsky was a prominent Russian composer, and the political and social scene in France was a little hairy at the time with animosity toward Russia. Apparently several anti-Russian factions were present at the theater that evening, and they were planning on disrupting the performance even before a single note had even been played. There's also speculation that the riot was spurred by class warfare. The attendance of the theater was split between the rich upper crust expecting a beautiful classic performance and the artistic bohemians who welcomed an avant-garde work like this to push music into its next era. So the riot was likely a result of all of these musical, political, and social reasons. But one thing is certain, Stravinsky's work found itself at the center of these crossroads and was one of the first landmarks of the modern musical era. The times, they were a-changing. In fact, this piece was so impactful that when Time magazine released its special edition of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century, Igor Stravinsky was the only classical composer on the list. So even though we strayed a bit in discussing this non-piano piece in detail, it has to be acknowledged for breaking down the doors of the modern era. So what else defines the music of this era? We discussed tonality, but now let's talk about rhythm. We talked about rhythm a bit last week with jazz music and the concept of syncopation, and that's a central feature for that style of music. But modern music in general tends to take more risks and have more rhythmic variation. We've talked about the rhythmic meter a couple times during this podcast. It's the fraction-looking thing at the beginning of a piece. 
The top number indicates how many beats per measure, and the bottom number indicates what kind of note receives one beat. The most common meter is 4-4, meaning four quarter notes in one measure. Previously, the meter typically remained constant throughout the entire piece. It might vary from movement to movement, but as a whole, it was reliable. The Romantic era began to break this ice with the idea of rubato, which gave the performer a bit more freedom to play with rhythm. But modern music shattered this ice mold. There are modern pieces that explore multiple rhythmic meters, oscillate between two different meters every other measure, or are so modern that they contain free-form sections without measured time at all. And what were modern composers using these musical ideas to write about? We've gone through eras that focused on religion, intelligence, emotion, nationalism, and nature. But what were the modern ideas? Well, you could probably find examples of all of those in modern music. But a new idea that was introduced during this era was the concept of science and technology. And I think that would be an excellent transition point to start talking about our piece du jour. We're going to talk about a short piano work called Rings of Saturn from modern composer Alexina Louie, which comes from a collection published in 1995 called Starlight, Star Bright. Alexina Louie is a Canadian composer of Chinese heritage, and fitting to this conversation, one of her biggest listed musical influences is none other than Mr. Igor Stravinsky. I think this piece is an evolution of Impressionism. It's evocative and atmospheric, but instead of drawing inspiration from nature, we're invited into a soundscape that emulates space. And she happens to use some of the modern musical concepts that we already discussed in this episode. First of all, the rhythmic meter is all over the place, and sometimes it's completely absent. The first two words you see in this piece, after the title and the composer's name, are senza misura, Italian for without measure. This piece opens without a measure marking, giving the performer full jurisdiction. From there, the piece employs a range of meters, including 4-4, 3-4, 5-4, 2-4, and has another stretch where it drops the meter entirely towards the end. The fact that good chunks of this piece are not bound by time abides by the inspiration of a galactic atmosphere, giving the vibe that we're lost in space. Taking notes from her inspiration, Stravinsky, Louis emphasizes and hammers the use of dissonance, using descending cumulative chromatic chord progression without resolution. She builds the tension and then makes us sit with it. She also ends the piece with dissonant chords where the left hand and the right hand 
almost play the same chord set, but they're a half step apart. It's a really neat technique that lends a futuristic flavor that is kind of eerie and unsettling. But you know, the best part about all of this dissonance is that it's extremely difficult to tell if a performer is playing the wrong notes. I honestly can't even tell you if all of these notes are correct. I may have missed one in there somewhere, but it's not something even I could pick out. This is definitely more of a mood piece about a scientific, futuristic setting and less of a technical work. So let's all space out for a few minutes and listen to Alexina Louis' Rings of Saturn. Well, that was the last stop on our trip. I hope you learned a bit about music history and all of the steps it has taken along the way. So now we should be able to use this information in the future to build a foundation on our discussions of a new piece. I should be able to mention what year a piece was written, and now we'll have a general idea of the era that it falls in and what that means. And if you don't remember, no worries. We'll go over it again. Next week, we're going to begin a new series that I am affectionately calling Back to the Basics. We're going to be diving into a collection of 25 etudes from Berg Mueller's opus number 100. Now, these are probably going to be the most entry-level pieces that we will talk about during the entire length of this podcast. So I thought it would be fitting to really dial it back and review some basic concepts that I may have glossed over previously. 
We'll be going through multiple pieces a week during this series, so we're really going to pick up the pace a bit. These are also great early intermediate pieces, so if you are learning to play the piano, I think you will especially enjoy this series. So, having said all that, if you'd like to reach out to me, find me on Twitter, at Piano Rhapsody, or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. You can find the standalone recording of the piece discussed in this episode right in the podcast feed. But if you're looking for more, check out my SoundCloud page. You'll find a playlist there titled All Music, No Talk. And it includes some unreleased tracks that we haven't talked about on this podcast. Thanks as always for listening, and please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. Talk to you next week with a new series.